Hello, welcome to episode four of the Cafe Genius Impresarios. Yes, that is spelled deliberately. I like extra letters in my words. And today we have Della with two L's, Della Rucker, <laughs> with with many letters after her name, which we'll get into. But Della Rucker, welcome to episode four, my second guest. Very exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to get a chance to be here. Uh, as am I. And I will... Uh, I, I do want to start with uh, what those letters are after name, A-I-C-P and C-E-C-D, C-E-C-D, sure. yeah. And um, and some other stuff like how we ended up meeting and our very long emails and whatnot. So let's, <laughs> let's and and I, I think we talked for about an hour. Uh, the first time we spoke on the phone, never having met, just emails. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked for at least an hour. So I think uh, I think we'll yeah, be okay absolutely. today. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm not concerned in the least. So <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm... I'm a very weird bird. I, I have kind of a career path that looks like cooked spaghetti is what I tell people a lot of times. Um, but those letters after my name indicate that I'm a certified urban planner and cool. that I'm a certified economic developer. And so AICP is the American Institute of Certified Planners. God, I should have looked that up before I got on this. Um <laughs> And see the CECD is certified economic developer. So one comes from one organization, one comes from the other organization. Um, they're both sort of the the top, the the kind of gold standard certification in those industries. And very few people are stupid enough to try to maintain both of them. And I've been doing that now for about a dozen years because the overlap between them in terms of what they require and what you have to do to get recertified and all of that ball of wax, it, they, there's a little overlap, but not much. So um, it's kind of like walking between different worlds. But to be honest, a lot of my career has been about having a foot in one world and having a foot in another and my left hand in a third one and <laughs> trying to find the the points of integration, the points of opportunity between them. And that came to a great extent out of the fact that I couldn't find solutions to the questions, to the issues that I really wanted to solve in any one of those alone. Hmm. And I mean, some of the stuff we'll talk about today probably will make it clear that that actual, well, especially in a locality, a city, city planning and economies and entrepreneurial ecosystems all fit together anyway. So mm-hmm. that you are a subject matter expert in all of these things is, will come in handy over the next year or 10. So that's good. Well, that's the hope. That's the hope. And so we met thanks to Christina Aldon and that nice came you. from you, you being downtown project, uh, proximal. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about that more later, but that's how we met. Mm-hmm. And we did talk for like an hour and stuff, um, which we'll probably get to again today. So the the two, so just a little a little backstory, a little bio. So Wise Economy uh, Workshop is your mm-hmm. is that your would you call that your day job or in that parlance? So I have kind of like, two day jobs these days. Oh yeah, I, I was going to get to Trap House also. So right. So in terms of quote unquote day job, I sort of split my time, um, the lion's share of it between Trap House and Wise Economy, and I'll explain Wise Economy in a minute. I've got a few other things that I sort of are involved with that are also, to use your word, proximate to those two, but 
um, that gets, starts to get really complicated. Um, so yeah, Wise Economy is a uh, it's a content platform and a consulting practice that I've had for about a dozen years now that came about because I had been working in conventional urban planning and in conventional economic development. And the questions that I really wanted to answer, like I said, were not, didn't seem to be adequately addressed by either of those. I also had a background in downtown revitalization and historic preservation. Those, you know, it was like all of this stuff is part of the answer, but none of it is individually. So, um, so I started Wise Economy Workshop really to try to figure out what those solutions were. And, and the, the big question that has been driving me for certainly for the last 20 years has been, how do we create, support, empower communities and people, the people who make up those communities? to be fully who they're capable of being and more particularly to be able to thrive individually and as communities, regardless of what's going on in the national or global economy. So I often joke that I had a front row seat for the collapse of the um, in the Industrial Revolution, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, at a time when the traditional businesses that had made places like Cleveland or Detroit or Buffalo or that whole piece of the world, the industries that had made those places thrive all very quickly collapsed. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather and my father ran a paint factory that was a casualty of that collapse. So when I say front row seat, I was on the front row. And I then got to watch and live through the 80s the repercussions of that that sort of economic disaster. And since then, I've seen a lot of places that have gone through parallel experiences. So a big motivation and kind of my driving question is how do we create communities and empower people to be able to thrive even when something like that is going on? Sure. And so... There's an economic dimension. There's also a sociological dimension. There's a personal dimension. There's all, all these different pieces, parts that play into that equation. So that's been kind of the overarching of my my work and my motivation for certainly the last dozen years, if not before. I, I think we felt that in Vegas, in particular, I mean, everybody did, but in Vegas, since they're so dependent on tourism and, and the, the tourist economy, hospitality and whatnot, the pandemic is a, definitely a bright light 
reminder mm-hmm. and uh, oh, yeah. which is dr- driving some of the things that we'll talk about later after we mm-hmm. talk about entrepreneurial ecosystems in general but anyway so trep house though let's on to that yeah. so so trep house is i am i'm the chief operating officer of trep house um, trep house is a virtual platform a virtual super hub that's specifically designed for what we call new majority founders. So these are people who are typically black, also indigenous, Latina and Latino, um, you know, people who are coming from backgrounds that have been historically left out of the opportunities to do entrepreneurship. And in this context, we don't differentiate between the person who wants to open a local restaurant and the person who's developing an app. Um, I know there's, there's differentiations, but um, for, from what I had seen in my practice and what our CEO, Kevo Agutera had, has lived there. There are so many ways in which, Black populations, particularly, but also people who are coming from other kinds of of um, underrepresented or under underappreciated backgrounds, get left out of the opportunity to to build wealth and to build personal agency and community agency through entrepreneurship. And so, Camo. Uh, read some of the work that I had had developed and reached out to me. He happens to only live an hour away from me. Um, and so over the course of a couple of years, we started um, collaborating. Trep House was his vision from day one. And to this point, we've got probably eight people um, who are involved in day-to-day operations and I'm the only white person. I am the only person who is older than our usual demographic, which is millennial Gen Z. Um, I'm very solidly Gen X. And yeah, exactly. Um, but it has been one of the best experiences of my life. So if anybody's interested in that, um, the Trump House is easy to find. It's truphouse.co. And we're in the process of doing a website upgrade, so things might look funky occasionally, but that's where that is. Um, so yeah, so that's Trap House does everything from um, entrepreneurship courses, so learning to be an entrepreneur, to more specialized training, to um, help with fundraising and fundraising preparedness, connection to vendors. But I think the most important thing that Trap House provides for that population is community. It's a sense of mm-hmm. not being isolated, not being crazy, even though everybody else in your family may be telling you that you're crazy. And it's it's the opportunity for for folks to to be themselves and to be in a culture and in a context that values them for everything that they are so that they don't have to, they don't feel that they have to, um, you know, sort of, of uh, code switch to deal with right. a predominantly white population. 
obviously there's times where that's necessary, but to give people a place where they can learn and grow and feel safe, um, is a, we decided early on and, and KMO felt really early on was a, a crucial piece of the whole equation. Yeah, I agree. And my try when I worked for Intel, uh, up until mm-hmm. the, the other big layoff six, seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, I was able to travel around and interact with at hackathons. I, mm-hmm. so I developed products and then I would go out and work with people of all ages using them. And it didn't, I mean, there was, there was a pretty good diversity of people, however, always fewer women. So similarly, yeah. it was interesting to see, um, and, and as a result of, of a particular event at uh, Mount Holyoke College, where they tried proactively to get a 50 50. Um, I don't know how uh, I will speak generically and just say, you know, uh, both genders mm-hmm. and leave it at that. But the so they managed to do that. But the people that the number of people who completed their hackathon project at the end of the weekend was still skewed. And I asked the professor that was driving, and she said, well, there's there's just a thing. The environment—it's about uh, imposter syndrome, maybe, or just confidence, mm-hmm. or so. So I really—it was really eye-opening for me. I never really thought about um, mm-hmm. showing up is not the whole thing, and yeah. um, so I mean that—that that probably extends because, like I said, it was—it was fairly diverse uh, in ethnicities, cultural, and whatnot. But mm-hmm. the gender part was a challenge, and it continues to be, and um, it's still. It's still something to work with, but yeah, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Safe spaces. Yeah. And in, and in tech, I mean, we know the number of women, I don't know it off the top of my head, but it's been documented. The number of women who start out in a STEM program and then drop out of a STEM program or yeah. go into a STEM career and leave STEM careers relatively early and go a different direction. And I think that's an enormous, enormous challenge. You know, I, again, I'm, I'm on the older side for this space, but I was, I'm much better at math and science than I ever gave myself credit for being as a kid. I closed myself out of those opportunities as a kid because it didn't come quite as easily to me as other, as, as some other things like writing. And I think I kind of got the tacit message that, you know, you're a girl, you're a girl, you don't, right. you don't really need to do this. On the other hand, you know, I know amazing women in STEM, um, you know, Heather Wild being, you know, a mutually, a, an example that we, we all know. Um, right. But um, yeah, that was that. Even back then, it was a particularly lonely road. My understanding is it's still kind of that way these today as well. Yeah. So. Um, my my other thing I do for free, the other 24 hours a day, is uh, the Innovate <laughs> for Vegas Foundation. And we have mm-hmm. drastically male turnout, in, yeah. again, in the simplest uh, version of that label. But the there are some number of women have expressed interest or or. I just want to keep it simple. Don't don't get in trouble. Don't make me get in trouble for uh, not using gender properly. But but I'm just saying more people should be involved. But there still seems to be this barrier. And even after we change the name to Innovate for Vegas to prevent the, you know, I'm not a coder, therefore I'm not welcome. Code for Vegas. But we still and we're trying to really push creative inputs for any non-coders. But uh, mm-hmm. the reach is still only getting to the usual 
demographics and, um, I, I would, and, and here's another, I mean, another challenge was I definitely reached out to a number of people to participate as board members, advisors mm-hmm. and other, other ways. And it was always either no answer or eh, I'm not really, so there, there wasn't this eagerness mm-hmm. to participate and I get a little bit more eagerness if that's a word, mm-hmm. um, from the, the other half, I guess we'll say, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a frustrating journey because I think, as you say, it, uh, many it happened early. Uh, you know the Chinese saying about the tree, right? So the the, mm-hmm. the best time to get more people involved in STEM is is uh, fifty years ago or whatever, but the second <laughs> best time is now. And right. they but but really the programming of kids to think that they can't do the things that they love because of one thing or another, I think is a travesty. If you discount the great ideas of half of your population, you are you're not going to be around very long. So. Amen. Amen. And, you know, I got interested in, so I've had about a dozen years worth of more tangential experience working with populations that have been left out of, uh, you know, the, the, the big questions of innovation and entrepreneurship and uh, technology driven, you know, innovation and all of this kind of stuff. And one of the, but one of the things that I've been really coming to learn and appreciate and understand more recently is just how much of a burden somebody who is a leader in an unrepresented population's participation in a given industry, whether you're, you know, you're a black entrepreneur or you're a woman in high technology, um, et cetera, you're, you're fighting a constant battle. You feel that you've got to prove to be better. You've got to prove yourself to be, you know, absolutely top of the line at all times. And you have this pressure to be an example yeah. and to be a model. And the number, part of the reason why I am the chief operating officer at Trep House as a Gen X white woman is because I had the, the flexibility and the capacity, just the personal capacity, the mental capacity to take on that job. You know, it's a startup. We're not making hardly any, you know, we weren't making hardly any money, blah, blah, blah. The, the black people in our, in our circles who, you know, could have easily done that job and probably in many ways done it better than, than I, they already, they had full-time, you know, almost uniformly full-time jobs, um, their own side consulting, a nonprofit that they're running and, you know, helping their niece get through college. And, And you just, you look at it and you go, when do you sleep? <laughs> but that's that's what they have to do. And so once I understood that, it was like, okay, okay. It it gave me a whole new appreciation. Um and a little bit of awe of people who are in that position of being a leader in diversifying their space. I've probably been a leader in diversifying some spaces, but I'm pretty dense and I wasn't aware of it. 
Um, but it's a, it's a big burden to carry. And so I'm, uh, that's the conclusion I came to is the more we can do, the more I can do as, as a, I don't really like the word out, word allies become kind of messed up, but the more I can do to help those populations and sort of leverage what I can bring for for them to be able to step forward and thrive, I've really come to the conclusion that um, that's one of the best uses of what I have to bring to the table that I can put forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ally, friend, community, these are words that are often thrown around so much they lose mm-hmm. their actual meanings. Um, but I mean, yeah, the I, I think just recognizing that uh, there, there are so many people with good ideas or, mm-hmm. or inspiration or insights. Sometimes, you know, you, you can look through history and see that there are, have been significant and substantial discoveries and, and developments of methodologies and whatnot. Uh, they didn't say, oh, you're a, you're a male person, therefore you, your idea counts. And like, you know, mm-hmm. you can look at the famous ones, Ada Lovelace, uh, Marie Curie, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, so yeah, I I hope we get to the point someday when it's uh, like, oh, you have a good idea. Uh, it doesn't really matter what else what else is going on. Yeah. Good ideas are welcome. So yeah, the, you know, the, one of the amazing things to me when I was very young, I encountered the work on um, scientific paradigms. I believe it's Thomas Kuhn. I should have looked that up because I didn't think I'd bring that up today. Um, and names don't stick in my head. So it's like, oh, who is that? Okay. Um, but invariably, you know, if you look at that stuff, that that research, in it, the, the truly groundbreaking innovations going back hundreds and hundreds of years almost invariably came from somebody who was outside of the standard paradigm. So somebody who is observing, I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but, you know, if you look through the, 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 that history of scientific paradigms, that scientific philosophy, it more times than not, the big breakthroughs came from somebody who had an experience, had expertise that was completely different from what the mainline was saying because they weren't in the box that traditional scientists of that discipline were in. They didn't live within those assumptions so they could see other possibilities. And I see that all the time when we work with people who are of these underrepresented um, populations that they, because they're seeing challenge X in from a profoundly different point of view, they bring something entirely new to the situation. I'm going to use, let me, let me give a quick example of that. So I mentioned that the CEO of Trap House is named Camo Ahakatera. I can spell that. You've got that in other materials. Yeah. Um, there, there are links to all the stuff in the show notes, by the way, anybody listening. So okay. Trap awesome. House and all that. Yep. Yeah. So Camo at, Roughly the same time as this is, you know, endemic to entrepreneurs, right? They can never just do one thing. They do like (laughs) four of them at once. Um, He also started a company 
um, called Design to Build. And Design to Build is a, a type of construction that people in, in Las Vegas are very familiar with, which is out of shipping containers. Mm-hmm. And, but the difference here, and there, he's not the only one doing this, but but he put a very unique spin on this is that design to build is designed specifically to address affordable housing and um, um, temporary housing for people who are experiencing homelessness and disaster response by using manufacturing systems to create modular buildings that um, can be very small can have multiple units, there a ton of different designs. And a lot of people have thought of using containers because they're, you know, they've got this cool industrial look or it's like Legos the way you put them together or, or whatever. But I think you had to come from Camo's experience and Camo's background in order to to look at that technology and say this is a way to solve problems that are important to my community that I have seen lived firsthand. And that's the kind of thing that is so important to when we have broader, is so so much the reason why we need broader involvement in innovation, in entrepreneurship, in technology, in 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 this world of creating new things and new ideas. It's because I would have never thought of that. Right. Right. Nemo could. And this is, I mean, this is common. I've been an engineer for 30 years and it never ceases to amaze me how often I hear, why would somebody want to, you know, fill in blank. So like, Hmm, yes, you sitting in your cubicle surely know how all of your users will be using this thing. So, uh, I, once I came across the, you know, the actual practice of co-creation or, or actually going out into the world and working with, or sitting next to the people that your intended audience are. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the example I always give, uh, so if you're listening and you've heard this before, too bad. Mm-hmm. I always say, if you cook somebody a meal and you, and they, you know, they come to your home or wherever and you cook, cook some, some victuals and you put it down on the table and they, Taste it. What's the very first question you ask? How is it? Oh, that that right? I was trying to think as the person eating the food. Oh no, um, no, the, the, you you it, have made it. you have made something. Right. So so often people don't actually get to or don't think to. So they they build products. They build. They come up with urban plans. They come up with mm-hmm, economic mm-hmm. development, and then they're like, uh, "Should we ask anybody what they think of this?" Nope. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So actual. I- Lived experience um, is part of the whole deal. So the co-creation stuff is a good absolutely. idea. And I get in trouble with economic development and urban planning people all the time for um, disrespecting the lip service that they give to um, getting, quote unquote, community buy-in or community feedback or uh, stakeholder engagement or something like that. Because... In that universe, so often they're kind of scared to talk to the public, in part because nobody's taught them how to do that, believe it or not. 
Mm-hmm. And so they kind of do the th- whatever they're being required to do to check the box. But when you actually, and this was a big piece of my urban planning life, was doing extensive public engagement. So I would do basically workshops with community members. It, sometimes people use the word charrette. I'm not an architect, so so that's not technically the right word, but it's that kind of basic idea if people are familiar with the, what that is. Um, but around concepts and, and um kind of design, less about design characteristics and more about what you want your community to be like overall. And that was, that's a really pretty hard sell for, for some folks who are used to being the experts and there's a safety, there's, there's a sense of security in being the expert and not feeling like you have to go ask a bunch of the great unwashed, but very often they're the ones who have the insight that makes all the difference. And I think really, I think that's universal across, um, across discipline, at least from what I have seen. And that's part of why I so enjoy working in entrepreneurship because that has become so much part of the ethos that you go out and you test and you ask and you try. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, the unwashed masses, I use that a lot. And I, <laughs> when I say it, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to insult people. It's literally just means the, the populace and uh, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, they don't have the luxury of sitting in a cubicle with the person designing the thing that they're going to be cursing about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does this phone not work? But yeah, and it is that divide. And I think, and the best, the best, um, whether it's actually starting companies, entrepreneurialism, or just people who take the time, even if it's food, even if it's, uh, and I, you know, I have a food truck, uh, thing. So food truck owners food are truck thing. I, I've enjoyed food trucks. I've been the okay. director of owners associations. I've worked on mm. food trucks. I've organized events. I've, I have software that I never finished because thanks pandemic for kind of squashing mm-hmm. everything. But, but to me, that's, uh, in the, in the food business, that's, that's about as close to talking to the customers every day as you're going to get. Right. And I know yeah. food truck owners mm-hmm. that that's why they do it because they get to mm-hmm. talk to people in all different places. And I always say that the owner of this, the owner of this restaurant is on the other side of this very thin sheet metal. <laughs> if you yes, want to ask a question, they're right there. Right. So those, uh, you know, they're not the back of that. The back of the house is the front of the house essentially. So they, uh, exactly. It's a good way to put it. And so that extends to, like I said, all the, all the engineering stuff I've worked on. And I, I have this eventually someday project, um, to try to co-create assistive technologies and, and devices that we will all need some sooner than others. Mm -hmm. But basically, you know, you, you try to speak to your Amazon smart speaker product and it's like, ah, it didn't work. Well, imagine if you have Mm -hmm. an injury or some other situation that, that limits that, but we have the technology to make those products better. Uh, you just, uh, as we are recording this in March, uh, 2023, the Google glass has just been discontinued. And I always tell people that that product 10 years ago could identify American currency from the camera. So if you're, if you can't see and our money is all the same size and shape and all that. So we're like one of the, we're, I think we're like one of the only countries in the world that does that, if that's still mm-hmm. true. Yeah. So you could use this technology to function 
uh, in the in, with our modern currencies and whatnot. So they they're canceling that probably because probably because it was just not cool, but it is <laughs> in the life changing technology space, and uh, you know nobody appreciates that until they need it, and then suddenly, oh man, I wish I could identify which money I have in my pocket. Yeah. So yeah. there's the more you know your users and your customers, and that just applies to everything, right? So. Oh yeah. Get out into the world. And so on the ground entrepreneurialism is, uh, mm-hmm. is about the best. It's my favorite. That's why local entrepreneurs are more interesting than the people that want to ch- like, I want a hundred million customers. Well, why don't you try to work really well with one first? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in so, non, in non-tech, that's the advice that we give people, right? It's yeah. hone your product with these 10, but how do you sustain, you know, the question of how you do that and you sustain it, you know, that gets people hung up, but man, yeah, you learn so much in that, in well, that context. Right. And something that I want to, um, for some reason, this, as far as I know, does not exist here in Las Vegas, but the, I don't know if uh, anybody knows this, but we have a lot of people coming to visit here. So mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the population of the population of Southern Nevada is something like 2.3 million. I think Las mm-hmm. Vegas proper is about less than 600,000 according to the census, but say mm-hmm. six to 600,000 people. But our tourism rate is something like 40 to 50 million, depending on which day you look at which numbers. But it's mm-hmm. a lot of people every year coming here. And that's a lot of people to expose to a new idea or technology or method or say you're developing yeah. an assistive technology that could be life-changing to you know the, the 2% of people that visit here that would otherwise not experience it, right? So there's all yeah. kinds of opportunities to actually get out and talk to people directly or engage and interact and get feedback. And they're coming to you or they're coming to us, I yeah. should say. So um, yeah. that that's and on my list of to-dos is to enable that more. Awesome. Two things. Uh, number one is that that's like tourism industries. And of course, Las Vegas is the Uber tourism agent industry or tourism economy rather. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of tourism, you know, places that are very dependent on tourism in the U.S. Um, and worldwide. Las Vegas, obviously, is kind of a, a creature unto itself in that space. But two things that you triggered thinking about that. Number one is that's we talk sometimes about the difficulties of a a tourism based economy. It doesn't grow. It doesn't inherently grow certain kinds of, of high-paying jobs. Um, there can be a tendency to consolidation, like you see in the casino industry in in Las Vegas and places like the Maldives. Um, but you also have this incredible opportunity to, yeah, really have the world come to you, like you said. And, and that's a growth opportunity, not necessarily because you're going to attract those people like come and live here, although some very much will. That's another story that we'll get to later, but yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. The other thing is, and, and I think this is an, an asset that Las Vegas has, and we haven't talked about the downtown project yet, but um, people, because Las Vegas is culturally so focused on, you know, communities, community, um, customer service, there's a word I want, and on 
and has this, you know, historically heavily transient population. Yes. I have never any place else that I've ever been. And I've been in large cities, small cities all over the country. I never met people who were as immediately friendly and open as in Las Vegas. And that to me continues to be sort of the defining cultural characteristic of Las Vegas for me is I've never been in a place. I'm a, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. Um, If you haven't been here for three generations, I'm still kind of looking at you a little bit sideways. But in Las Vegas, you know, in, in 10 minutes, you know, I can make a new friend for life. And I know that's grossly oversimplified and not always the case and everything like that. But there, there's a definite, that's a uniqueness to, to the experience of Las Vegas, especially when we start talking about downtown Las Vegas, but also I've encountered that in other parts of, of the region as well. That's special. That's really special. I'm going to Philadelphia next week, and I assure you that it will not feel like that. I'm going to Cleveland in a couple of weeks. Cleveland is my birthplace, and it will not feel like that. So, Are you familiar with the, uh, the nice versus kind comparison between, say, New York and San Francisco or LA? Probably San Francisco. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. I almost wonder, because especially when it comes to driving here, there's such, you just never know if somebody's going to try to cut you off or they're going to let you in. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder if it's the similar, like the hybridization of so much transient population, yeah. people coming and going, plus the visitors. And like, for, like I always, there, I, I uh, sold my car seven, six, six or seven years ago. So I'm totally committed mm-hmm. to our transit system and, and all of its failings. And so oh. I, whenever I'm, uh, that's a, that's a whole long story about our open transit project <laughs> for the, th- but, but the take home, which I learned in my travels to, for, for Intel, for all these hackathons, when I never rented cars, I would always take public transit, whether it was a bus or mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, a Lyft or an Uber, but mm-hmm. I tried as much as possible to take local public transit. Cause you really, first of all, they know where you're going and I didn't always know where I was going. So, <laughs> so, uh, in in uh in Italy, just get on the train and it ends up by the Maker Fair. Great and uh, and so on. Yeah. So, but you get to talk to people and they're always helpful. There's mm-hmm. always like you just show them a picture or try to figure, and they they'll point you in the right direction. And I do the same here mm-hmm. because you never know. And the you know tourists are they're, they're just normal people and they come here and they're just trying to get from A to B. And you're like, oh, I know where that is. Just get on. And if they don't speak English, then there's a lot of pointing at things. Luckily, they have mm-hmm. a picture or a map on their phone. But yeah, it, it's uh, in my experience. I I guess I'm one of the one of the nice people you might encounter. But I do try to help people. Maybe it's like a karma thing because um, I am from New Jersey, but I did live in Silicon Valley, so I have the nice and yeah. kind split. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Well, or maybe maybe neither. I don't know. Some somebody in, else in will have to mid- judge me. Oh yeah. In the Midwest, we 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 refer to Midwest nice. And the, the stereotype is like the three hour goodbye and the, you know, watch out for deer when you leave, leave, you know, somebody leaves your house, that kind of thing. Um, but there's still beneath that, there's still a little bit of a um, unsureness about 
strangers that, you know, again, maybe, maybe I was fortunate, but I've experienced so much less of that unsureness about strangers in Las Vegas than I have, um, in a lot of other places. So maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's, I think the mix of nice and kind is a, is a really good way to put it. It might also be just having, developing the, the muscle as it were, the, the comfort level with dealing with people who are not embedded in your own, you know, your own culture and your own background. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, hospitality is right there in our, uh, our, (laughs) at the top of the list of economic, economic, uh, drivers, right? So we have to be good at it, I guess. Uh, but no, I think you're right. And and it's 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 an asset. No, I was going to say it's, it's something we should leverage. Yes, exactly. Just as you said. So, um, and I, I just want to mention real quick that you, you have a couple of books, which I like the Mm -hmm. titles already, but, um, (laughs) so uh, everybody innovates here, which I'm hoping to drive with innovate for Vegas in our innovation district at the innovation center, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and then the local mm-hmm. economy revolution has arrived, which it certainly seems to be once again in Vegas. Yes, so those indeed. two books are, are they available generally for the world? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you, if you Google those two titles, especially if you put the name Della attached to it, you don't even have to remember that my last name's Rucker. Um, that's, you know, I hated having a name like that when I was a kid, but now it comes in really handy. Um, sure. You should be able to come up with that. You can get them from bookshop.org or Amazon or wherever you want okay. to get your books. All right. So, yeah, those are also in the show. The show notes being uh, next to wherever you grab this uh, this podcast file or uh, audio mm-hmm. file. So that'll be in there. And then so we can – we're still not going to get to the downtown project yet. That That's going to be towards the end because I definitely want to talk about entrepreneurial ecosystems. But so you – I I have told people that you were around – because I'm not exactly sure like how many minutes you spent downtown. I always tell people that I was more of a spectator. So mm-hmm. my travel schedule was such that I was, my weekends were Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, essentially. So I was mm-hmm. always around downtown, but mostly I was not. So what, what was your exposure? And then, and then we'll get to some general stuff and, and end so on would, our experience here. Sure. Uh, so I was, when it came to the downtown project, I was, also, I would say very much an observer. And that was partly reality. I didn't live in Las Vegas. I came during that time period. I probably came to Las Vegas once uh, once every six months or something like that, probably at most. Um, I had... I, and I still have people who were connected to the downtown project that I um, I love and appreciate. We've mentioned uh, Christine Aldon. Um, it, but for me, it was it was completely fascinating as an observer of the downtown project because of where I was coming from. So by that point, I had not to blow my own horn, but I pretty much had mastery of the conventional tools and resources in urban planning and economic development. And particularly my kind of one of my core areas has always been the question of downtown revitalization. 
I grew up a couple of blocks off of a small downtown. I watched that, that, you know, crash that was so endemic to so many of our central commercial districts. And even though I've struggled for years to describe why that matters, it clearly matters. And so when I first found out about the downtown project, it was reading about the container park. And this was before the container park had been built. And so I remember being out on vacation. We had taken my kids, the the standard Easterner thing where you have to do the obligatory um, tour of the Southwestern National Parks. We had done that when my, my kids are now in their 20s. They were in like middle school, high school at the time. And I peeled away one night to go to a very early downtown podcast. And you and I talked about this online uh, the other day. Mm-hmm. And it was, this was way back when it was in, like the Ogden was still mostly empty and it was some unused apartment on the high up on the upper floors. Um, the container park at that point, I, I went out there and I'd seen the renderings and, and everything like that. But at that point, it was a geodesic dome and, a, and a, I think a, a super long container standing on end. And that was it oh. <laughs> on, a, on a dusty, vacant lot. Um, but I went to that podcast and the room's full. And I met Christina and Heather, who I think we've also mentioned there, yep. and a bunch of other people. And it was just, it was a fabulous fabulous environment and I felt like I said so welcome even though I was not quote unquote one of them I was older um I was not a tech person you know so I was I was I knew I was odd bird out but I was so welcome regardless and uh and and that kind of hooked me and and so over the course of the next few years as the downtown project in you know sort of its phase one was under development. Um, I I would go whenever I could, but I was also paying attention real closely online. So I was following you know everything that was going on via Twitter or Facebook or whatever we were using at that point in time. And the the piece that was most important to me was that that was one of the first times that I had ever seen a group of people who started out with the perspective of we're going to revitalize this part of the city that has been largely ignored, left out, and um, is going to pot. And I don't mean pot marijuana. I mean, it was going, you know, fault going to pieces um we're gonna we're gonna work on this we're gonna work on the physical side and the business side at the same time and that sounds really sort of like captain obvious maybe but (laughs) i had seen so many downtown revitalization projects that focused on the physical and never touched the getting businesses like the number of beautifully cleaned up streets that I've seen 
with lovely old storefronts and brick pavers and ornamental lights and and hanging baskets and absolutely nobody in the buildings or on the streets you know it's um that was that was my frame of reference and so for me the downtown projects approach especially when it came to the small business side i kind of knew the tech side but not as well and i think arguably the tech side wasn't as it it didn't achieve the results that i think those folks were hoping for i would agree but what i yeah but what i saw on the small business side so chef natalie with eat and um and the container park and all of these things um it was a little bit transformative it was a little bit mind blowing for me as mm-hmm. a conventional urban planner slash economic developer from the eastern half of the U.S. The, but caveat, I, I purposely never met Tony Shea. I mean, I think I said hello to him in an elevator at some point. Um, and I had people who were very, very tight with him. Yep. I could have gotten an interview with him. And I was toying at the time and still toy with the idea of doing a book on kind of what I saw and what I was learning. And of course now having, you know, some time having gone under the bridge since then, I think, you know, it's a different perspective, but um, I purposely wasn't close to the um, sort of the, 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 the central people. I purposely kept my distance from that because I, I didn't want to be swayed by their vision anymore than I had to. I wanted to see what was going right. on, but and, and, I and that's, still. That's very. I'm oh, I was, sorry. I was. No, gonna, that's very similar to the co-creation idea, right? Like the closer yeah. you are to the people doing stuff, the better sense you have, in my opinion, than if you sit up in the in the high castle or in the penthouse or you know if you're if you're too far mm-hmm. removed, then you suffer from what's that social psych thing where you you uh, you, you protect each other from reality, you just reinforce each other's. Yeah what you think is happening. So yeah, I prefer to be closer to, so yeah, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But no, 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 no. That's, that's, that's exactly it. And what I saw playing out, um, especially when it came to the, the things like how they used buildings that weren't being, that didn't have a, a commercial use yet. So the early life is beautiful installations. Um, the uh you know the uses of the container park there i i have some critique um but there was so much there was so much that i felt like was really good in there and you know unfortunately i'm not paying attention as closely as i used to I feel like they made what is from an economic standpoint, a very logical shift to sort of focus more on the real estate development side. Um, That's largely what organizations comparable to downtown project do um, across the country. Yeah. A little bit of variation on the theme, but not, not as groundbreaking, but I think the downtown project was able to be groundbreaking because it goes back to you know people coming in from an outside perspective now the downside is that i think some of the people who are coming in from an outside perspective perhaps didn't remain open to 
um, kind of hearing from other outside perspectives in a really co-creation kind of way to, to use. And that's a, a term that I absolutely adore. Um, so I think, I think that, and, and, and that's part of the risk when you go from being the outsider to the insider, right? So the question of maintaining that, um, that openness to new, to new stimuli and new ideas and to not get stuck on things like I set a particular timeline. I, um, the lawyer says I have to do it this way kind of thing. That becomes really important when you're trying to create something that's truly, truly innovative. But anybody who's been, been around there can see, I mean, the difference between the area, the downtown Las Vegas area, you know, when I first saw it, probably pre-downtown project in like 2007 or something like that, to now is, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. It's certainly. Um, I, <clears throat> when I moved here in 2000, technically, yeah, te- uh, August of 2013, I somehow, oh, so my downtown project, I'm sorry, downtown podcast experience um, because I had a podcast network of sorts in Silicon Valley, Radio mm-hmm. Sunnyvale. And then when I moved here, I had a house fire. So I was like, oh, might as well move to Vegas. So I, so I moved to Vegas. You moved to Vegas because you had a house fire? Yeah. Oh my that Lord. It was, was an interesting exit of the Silicon Valley scene. Um, it had just, uh, I had lived in the same place for so long that I had no sense of how expensive rent really was. <laughs> so when I, yeah. Cause it, they never, I was, I lived in a, a little duplex by the train station. I used to take the train up to the city to work and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So when I, you know, after the fire, that's always a good uh, beginning or end of a story. <laughs> I looked around from, it was April 8th, I think it was of 2013 until uh, mm-hmm. July. I came out to Vegas, checked out like which neighborhoods or whatever. And August 1st moved in to a place and then come November, I, I was looking around online and see, you know, what's the, what is it? What's the job market? What am I going to do here? Silicon Valley software engineer for however long. So mm-hmm. I stumbled upon the downtown podcast and I went, I'm, oh, you can see, you can go to a live recording. Okay. So I went down there, mm-hmm. quietly sat off to the side, watched what was going on. Probably Christina was there. I, I, I remember seeing her <laughs> early on. And then I went to a show, a, a recording and, um, Pavel, if you remember Pavel, uh, needed some help with a camera he said hey do you know how to work a camera i said yeah i actually used to do podcast blah 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 you know and a quick intro and then talk mm-hmm. to dylan talk to suze she goes by suze now i think so oh, um okay. suze hinton and um mm-hmm. all the, the whole gang and jackie and, and everybody and then slowly but surely started meeting people and and uh so just as you say, people are very nice here and whatnot. So it was very easy to talk to people and run into people and downtown. It was very, uh, almost like a college campus, right? Like, Oh, Hey, Mm -hmm. Hey, Lisa. Hey, Dylan. Hey, and other Dylan and third Dylan and and all that. So, uh, (laughs) like a very small college campus. Sure. But a lot of stuff going on. But the moment I got my job offer to work for Intel and then coincidentally there was a newspaper uh, magazine, I'm sorry, magazine article that had come out, like what powered the success of Silicon Valley? It was three educational institutions, Berkeley, Stanford, and Harvey Mudd College. And I was like, what? So I, huh. I, so I'm here in Vegas. I moved to Vegas from Silicon Valley. 
I graduated from Harvey Mudd College forever ago, mm-hmm. 30 years ago now, and um, and I'm just starting to work as the only Intel employee in Nevada. So I got a lot of attention. Hmm. And so I was able to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people and have meetings with people. And um, it, was, it was a very interesting time from 2014 for a couple of years and then the big layoffs yeah. from Intel. So, But during that time, I learned a lot about what did work and what did not. Mm-hmm. Um, based on my observations. And that's why I'm excited to, when we get down to the the retrospective and whatnot. But I do, but so before, so that's a little teaser. So before we get there, um, I think it's important to talk about ecosystems because I think mm-hmm. people throw that term around also. And I think they believe that you can just sprinkle some magic dust on some ground and it turns into an <laughs> ecosystem. And I think it's substantially more complicated than that. And Las Vegas is a great example of that. So what is an entrepreneurial ecosystem? And then we'll get down to the downtown project, I promise. Oh, no, yeah. But- no, we go where you want to go. Um, so, and actually that book, you mentioned the book, Everybody Innovates Here. That book actually has a, like half of it is about the, the, the process of, of, if not building, then understanding and analyzing an ecosystem. And... So, so the interesting thing, and I, you and I have talked about this before. So part of the conversation around downtown project was around community and the importance of community. And Tony Shea said very publicly that he had gotten that from um, a book by Edward Glazer, who is an economist, um, where he, Glazer identified the, the means of generating value in a place like New York City as being a result of the fact that you could meet people and run into people and develop working relationships with people from uh, who were doing all sorts of fascinating, interesting things if you had a location where those people wanted to be. That like um, being in that location was kind of like an enter- a, uh, an engine for creating innovation. Um, and innovation in this case, meaning corporate innovation or startup or, you know, it's, it's just the process of creating new um, products and services and things. So ecosystem is a little bit, entrepreneurial ecosystem is a little more sophisticated understanding than that, because it turns out that we could have collisions and sometimes people get dumb lucky and just happen to sit next to on the couch next to you know somebody who ends up being a collaborative of theirs for for decades and decades um but very often we don't right and so if you think about a natural ecosystem so let's take one that's familiar to your listeners red rocks and if you, if you look at that environment and if you're an environmental, you're an ecologist or you're an ecological engineer or you're an environmental scientist, you see how the different pieces interrelate with each other. So because of the chemical nature of the stone and the way it weathers, certain plants grow there that I can't find in Southern Ohio. Like they don't occur here um, because it's a different environment. Those plants are then food for certain kinds of animals. Those animals, other animals eat them. Some animals eat the animals that have died, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can all picture kind of what 
that that type of ecosystem looks like. Um, and ecosystems are unique to a place. So if you take that and you, you apply it as an analogy to the question of innovation, part of the point that I was making in that book is that if you want to grow a healthy ecosystem on the environmental side, you don't just take a bunch of seeds um, and like random stuff that you got at, at Home Depot and throw them into a pile and think something's going to happen. Because you might get you might get a few plants growing and they might one might work and one might die, but the and the maybe an animal shows up or maybe it doesn't. It's 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 not haphazard. So, Serendipitous agriculture? Yeah. Sir, I don't think serendipitous <laughs> I mean, I'm all in favor of seed bombing places that are are monocultures, but yeah. um, that's not quite the same thing. So to have an effective entrepreneurial ecosystem, especially if it's going to be effective for those people who've been historically left out of the equation, it needs to have a lot of different functions. So in the book, I call them pumps and pipes. And the pumps are, in in that analogy, are different kinds of organizations or programs. So you need to have a place where people can be learning to be entrepreneurs. You need to have places where people can connect to other people who are entrepreneurs. This informed the way we structured Trump House a lot. But you also have to have organization, you have to have places that can house a lot of these different organizations and help them be in proximity to each other. So again, collision wasn't completely wrong. It was just incomplete. So places where you can at least have the the stage setting for that are important. Um, One of the ones that I talk about in that book, I termed a switchboard operator because so often people struggle to figure out where to go. Okay, I I can't figure out how to do this thing, or I can't find this kind of uh, supplier, or I everybody in my family thinks that I'm a I'm psycho. I need somebody to under I need people who get me. Um, and the switchboard operator becomes really important in helping people kind of find the right the right resources. Again, if you're if you're a privileged person, like that wasn't formally a part of how a Silicon Valley or a Route 128 in in Boston, um, or or the zillion innovation districts that have grown up since then, that isn't always a formal part of that because if you're coming from a place of privilege, you've got the personal network the um, the networking skills and you're and you're you just you fit it and so there's less barrier to finding the resources that you need where do I plug into this ecosystem for people who are historically underrepresented um, it needs to be you can't just so much leave it to happenstance because that's uh, I, where yeah. people can't 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 find, can't connect, and um, and so can't do. 
Right. I agree. I would agree with that. I would, um, although I would say <clears throat> Silicon Valley is kind of a special case when it comes to that. Pardon me. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, is a special case, I think, because there was just so much rapid growth and thus mm-hmm. rapid uh, job growth that mm-hmm. it just, you you almost try, and I, I always tell this story, I would come home from work when back in the answering machine days, and my mm-hmm. the little blinking red light said, oh, so one person actually like arranged the, like, okay, you're, you're meeting tomorrow at nine o'clock with someone. I'm like, I didn't, what, who is this? So there was just huh. jobs being thrown at people. So mm-hmm. I think it's almost unfair to include that um, because access to, to connectivity, to networking, to just ha- you know, falling into quote unquote communities was right. almost foisted upon people. And yeah. in other places you sort of have to look around and you can't and, and i like anybody who was in silicon valley during the during the boom knows that it, language and and uh, if you could if you could sit in a chair and do what was needed to be done you didn't really need to speak english as your first or second language mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. there's a lot of things so i think it's almost unfair to consider that but the serendipitous yeah. collision stuff i always say it's it's nice but it's not a business model it's fun. That's a good way to put it. It's nice. It's it's great when it happens. Yeah. It happens very rarely. It's kind of a unicorn situation, um, but it's not a business model. And there's and and we've got some research on you know that wasn't available when you were there, but there's research now that indicates that you know women weren't getting those jobs and people who were black and hadn't gone to the right school maybe weren't getting those jobs maybe occasionally because there was such demand the the key challenge really is in my opinion you know we talk all the time about this talent crunch that we're in so it doesn't matter. I don't care whether you're a healthcare provider or um, creating AI. Everybody, everybody anymore is saying, I can't find a talent. And so that's a, an adjacent issue to entrepreneurship per se. But we leave so many people kind of behind. Yes. And we, we assume that, and again, this goes back to paradigms, left to our own devices, a lot of us assume that a person who takes X job or a person who starts X company has to, if not look in terms of skin color, certainly look in terms of um, clothing choice, um, language, um, language style, background, etc., is going to look like this. And one of the core questions, and, and part of the reason why that book is called "Everybody Innovates Here," is that to me, it's it's really a core tenet of the world going forward, or at least the world of innovation and problem solving. The stuff I'm interested in is that we're going to have to include people who have not been part of those conversations, have not been part of that, that work in the past. Um, so that's, that to me is a really crucial driver. And so the biggest reason why I push so hard anymore for ecosystems, for the, for the system part, as opposed to the 
sort of there's a bunch of stuff going on and it all kind of relates to each other and we go to the same meetups and it's cool kind of approach is because so many people get left out and people if if it, if there's not some some navigability to that right. whole system and people will push back on that and say like oh but we need it to be organic and we need it to be responsive and we need blah 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 well a natural ecosystem is responsive and reactive and can change but it's it's a flexing of the relationships between the components as opposed to just having a jumbled mess and hoping that you can fuddle your way through and figure it out. Because if you are coming from an underrepresented background, you don't have, you may not, you very well may not have the time, the money, the emotional or personal capacity to do that fumbling around. Right. So making it, making it a more effective ecosystem. We're not building those by ourselves anymore. I mean, we're not, those aren't occurring naturally, probably because we killed most of them in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But that's a really crucial piece to actually getting the level of entrepreneurship and innovation that I think we need. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, there, if so, to, to connect the the ecological, there's uh, nobody thinks about this so much, but the um, it's a history and uh, ecology lesson rolled into one. But the America, mm-hmm. the U- United States has a has a policy about finding islands of of guano, bird mm-hmm. poop, uh, mm-hmm. because of the phosphorus per, uh, value for farming for food supply. Uh, we will automatically go full imperialist and <laughs> take it over. And uh, fun fact, the, U- the Ukraine is uh, a major supplier of potassium-based uh, fertilizer for mm-hmm. growing food. So the importance of food supply and the, the ecological requirements to enable food supply are not always completely obvious. Um, but if you look at, if you connect that with uh, an entrepreneurial ecosystem, it's not always clear that... Um, well, they'll just figure it out. And, uh, and though I call it the last mile problem, which we'll touch on for mm-hmm. the downtown project stuff, uh, shortly, but the stuff we're doing now with my little round table, which we'll also t- touch on. We have, uh, mm-hmm. we have, uh, Evelyn is here from Silicon Valley. She's looking at w- what do people do when they want to live here, but they don't have two years of pay stubs or so many months mm-hmm. of you know rent in the bank. Um, if you want to encourage a startup ecosystem or an entrepreneurial ecosystem, but you can't live here, then you, you know, you can't ask people to move here and then wish them luck. And to Tony's credit, Tony Shea's credit, there was, um, there were housing options. You know, you could live in the Mm -hmm. Ogden or the Jewel or other places, which I think was part of the Vegas tech fund deal Mm -hmm. was that you could, you could just move into a place with your team and you could work on your stuff. Um, there was startup row in the Huntridge, which was several houses that somebody managed to lease near each other and a bunch of people lived mm-hmm. in those kind of communal co co-work co-live which is as evelyn points out which uh hopefully someday you'll meet her th- there's a oh. sense of community from living with people in a similar situation that are they e- either they're your colleagues with your own adventure or they're doing something equally stressful and and risky <laughs> and so you kind of feed <laughs> off each other Amen. but just yeah 
but just thinking of that stuff is uh is is the the soil air water and uh and tending these are the components that people don't really think of just oh just move to move to silicon yeah. valley and it'll just happen well that only happened because it was like 10 feet of topsoil to plant in you know you didn't have anything to worry about it was ridiculous but i think here it's a little bit more of a challenge and to just yeah. leave people to their own devices because they're i i will say there i have spoken to people who graduate from college here and then their mm -hmm. first thought is to go where the jobs are I say well, why don't you stay here well if i if i stay here and the job i have doesn't work out is there another one and that same goes for people who relocate here that's exactly what they say if it doesn't work out, what next? And if you go to a place like Austin or, or uh, Silicon Valley or mm -hmm. there are other cities um, that are growing. If you go to Dublin, Dublin, Ireland, yeah, ridiculous. Totally. They're, they're going nuts there and, and Dubai and other. So there are a lot of places that are, that are becoming job rich and, and entrepreneurial focus. Mm -hmm. And it takes more than just snapping the fingers and putting up a, a sign, I think. So that'll be interesting. Absolutely. So what does one do? What does one do to make... And I see, I, I would argue that changing an ecosystem is a not, is not a years, it's decades or generational, maybe like the energy, if you look at it as an energy argument, right. From an engineering perspective, mm -hmm. a system is what it is. And to change yeah. the system, it requires energy forces applied and, and so on. So right. what do you think about that? Like, is it, is it a five-year yeah. affair or a. It's, it's probably at, I think it's going to depend a lot on to use your analogy, the, the energy that's available within that community, um, within that particular context. So I'm going to, I'm going to go for a national scope again. If I am in a place that's been historically pretty, um, stable, I'm going to pick Cincinnati, which is where I live, um, as an example. Um, the energy, the energy load required here might be much higher than it would be in some other places because there's a certain inertia mm -hmm. that's exactly. set there. And there's in the challenge that we have in Cincinnati, which is the opposite of the, the challenge that you have in Las Vegas, which has been one of the reasons why Las Vegas has been fascinating to me, is that Cincinnati is chock-a-block with organizations that are trying in some shape, fashion, and form to address entrepreneurship, innovation, small business development, all of this stuff. And some in, in some, it's a, not quite so bad now, but a few years ago, they were tripping over each other. They were literally sort of fighting for the scraps. And I, I am vice chair of one of those organizations. And we would look at what was coming out of some other organizations and just say, that's a load of hooey. There's no way they can do that. And invariably they didn't, but you get the press for saying you can do the great thing. Um, right. If you quietly slip away, not so much. Um, so in that case, moving the ecosystem involved not only, you know, the work of building new pieces and 
building relationships and building connections, but it required the work of undoing this, you know, I am an island and I'm going to fight for, for, you know, everything I can get for me, myself and I, regardless of the fact that we're all supposedly, you know, working to solve the same question. Um, And I know you've got some, some, you know, sense of, you know, there's the, the challenge in Las Vegas is a little bit different. Um, Part of it's coming from, from what I understand at this point, and I'm just now beginning to reconnect back in, um, you know, you've got, you've got some, some people who are coming in with, I would argue, unrealistic expectations. Um, but you also have like holes. Like if, if I think of that ecosystem and I think of it, and I'm, I've been trying to design this, but as a, a matrix of those pumps and pipes, with the, and how they connect to each other. In Cincinnati, there are very few missing pumps. There's a lot of missing pipes, but there are very few missing pumps. In Las Vegas, because there is, there's just fewer nonprofit type organizations or social benefit type organizations, um, particularly focused on this issue, it I I don't know if there's like if if when we start doing that analysis if we'll find pumps in certain categories at all. I mean, is there in in a place like Cincinnati there are five different organizations that are trying to be the um, the 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 switchboard operator the the one who sends people and. You know, oh, you need to go talk to these guys and you need to go talk to those guys because that's a very powerful situation. In Las Vegas, I don't know that you have that at all at this point. I will, I think you're right. And I, but I also think we have two, at least two substantial issues in along those lines, which is one, the, the insular communities or, and the associated Mm -hmm. services mean, you don't always know what you don't know. So you don't know yeah. that they're like, oh, you guys have the same problem. Oh, you're already addressing it. Uh, during the downtown project, Tony hired uh, someone, her name's Meredith Spriggs, to be mm-hmm. the guru of homelessness, I guess, uh, to try to address the people that were being pushed out of the the, the various low, low-cost mm-hmm. apartments and hotels that were either squatting or they were living there temporarily mm-hmm. or, or whatever, what have you. So that was actually on the list of considerations. And yeah. I'm sure from, from what I understand that there are resources to tackle homelessness in Las Vegas, but it's the connection and the communication and the awareness that sort of breaks down and you have people living in steam tunnels and, and mm-hmm. on the street. And so I think there's a coordination issue. So as you say, the switchboard and, and just, just global awareness, global in our locality, mm-hmm. but you know, everybody should know that it's not, Oh, it's just a, pro- no, it's actually a problem that could be solved. Uh, yes. And then also is the, and the, this is a culture thing, I think, uh, just from, from my travels, there are cultures that are very, you have to know the person and shake their hand. And then there are cultures that are early adopters in the, the, the super connecting networks, like, you know, contact this person and mm-hmm. here's a other, another, but, but here it's definitely, you know, I can name the names, uh, you know, j- make sure you go talk to Josh. He knows the right, mm-hmm. you know, go talk to, to Jamie Schwartz at the mm-hmm. university. She's the, those two names come up 
every day I told Jamie while she's traveling, I said, there are people telling me on a Saturday that I need to go find you to get the right person to talk to. And that doesn't scale well. So yeah. Yeah. So our insular communities definitely need to. And and in fact, um, another person at our roundtable, Sammy, on Thursday was mm-hmm. was asking people at this event, I have a pitch workout room to pitch ideas. Mm-hmm. She said, how did you get here? How, what brought you to this event tonight? Like, where did the chain start? And it started at Tech Alley or it started with somebody mentioned it to somebody else. But it's we have a network of, of uh, one-to-one communications here, which... Mm-hmm. is difficult to scale in this modern era. So we need to learn how to adopt better communications and information sharing, and I call it discovery. So yeah, I, I think your point about pipes and, and uh, pumps and some missing pieces is accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it is going to be different for each place. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's the take-home, mm-hmm. is that each place is different, and you cannot simply come in with a bunch of pumps and start installing them. You're like, wait, which does this pump fit that pipe? Yeah. And there's this sense. And I, now my message is, um, Hey, Silicon Valley is going to be the next Las Vegas. And people think that's like, nah, scoffing at it. Well, Las Vegas can't be the next Silicon Valley either. It can be a better Las Vegas. And that's true of any Detroit can't be Las Vegas and Las Vegas yeah. can't be Detroit. And you see what oh, happened great. when you relied so completely on an industry. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to hear you saying that. I will say it over and over until people yeah. get sick of it because <laughs> a lot of people are chanting, we'll be the next tech hub and it's going to blow. And I think I think some tempered realism. And really the take home is the culture of Silicon Valley started in the 50s at Stanford, mm-hmm. really. Uh, mm-hmm. The culture of Las Vegas started in the 30s with the mob. <laughs> yeah, uh, Probably some of my family from New Jersey. But yeah. the fact is we've grown up and established our ecosystems and our climax communities are very different. And as you said earlier, the downtown projects, the rest, what, what remains there tends to be the restaurants and the retail outlets and the, the hospitality mm-hmm. and service industries. The mm-hmm. tech sort of meandered away. And, and by the way, uh, what, what happened to the successful tech startups that were in the downtown project? What, what happened when they crossed over into success? They all, they, moved. They, all, they all moved, right? Right. Most- you got to come to Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. That's where the money mm-hmm. is. And we want you to be closer to us. So this was a farm team, if you will, or, you know, so the culture fit and how to change that it takes more than one person with some good ideas and some best intentions, I think. So it'll be an Absolutely. interesting thing. I do. I, I know we're going pretty, I don't know how much more time we have. So I definitely mm-hmm. want to touch though on, I saw you posted, I didn't even read it yet, but on LinkedIn, um, electricity, power, uh, and access to it. And it's part of a larger resource equity, um, mm-hmm. which people don't think about also, which I happen to be interested in for our open data capture platform that we're working on for Innovate for Vegas. So mm-hmm. actually recognizing different geographical and demographical uh, disparities and yeah. connecting those and using the open data framework, actually making those visible and, and analyzable. Um, I'm, glad, I'm so glad you're doing that. I think, I think open data is going to end up being in, in the entire universe of open data is going to end up being the incredible transformation of this era. And we too easily overlook just the power and the capability of what we can do. Sure. If you know, knowing is uh, half the battle and the other half. So, (laughs) but there, I mean, the White House is driving a a data equity program, which I 
hope that we can, you know, kind of kind of participate in fully as we get more people going, oh, I see what how this works, volunteering mm-hmm. for the betterment of our of our locality. But um I always drop her name because uh it's I don't really know a lot of famous people, but my uh in junior high school I went to school with Denise uh now currently it's uh chief data scientist of the United States, Denise Ross, and she awesome. is a big proponent of of uh open data and using data equity approaches to, you know, equal access to things. And so the energy stuff is completely um, apropos today here in Vegas because the water, the access to water being what it is, is changing the access to electricity Mm -hmm. because generation has to switch more to natural gas, which the price of natural gas is up. So it depends on Mm -hmm. which areas have access to what, and it just, the list goes on and on. And then it goes to the internet access with cable and Access mm-hmm. to transit, our transit system is completely crazy when it comes to routes, route planning, mm-hmm. and where people actually live. And I could go on and on and on, but not having data makes it. Uh, I always, the example I always give is uh, I'm sure you've, um, any, well, anywhere you go shopping in a like a downtown shopping district, mm-hmm. but I, coming from back east, we would go to New York to the, to where, you know, Manhattan yeah. probably. You go to one electronic store or clothing store or whatever, and they'll give you a price and you go to a store down the street or across two blocks over and you get a different price and then they want to haggle with you. And they, But if you know all of the prices, then there's no more haggling, there's no more game playing, there's no more. So perfect information, as it's called, is um, makes things very different and it helps to- it helps to yeah. argue against things like what's wrong, uh, what's gentrification, gentrification is good, <laughs> which I have yeah. heard here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a conversation for another day. But we can have a part two and three probably. Um, But uh, so I don't know how much more time it's, we're coming up on an hour and a half, but I definitely wanted to. So first of all, that, so we can save the downtown project uh, deep dive for, for late, for another episode. If you, if you'll, uh, if you'll have me, but the, I definitely want to touch on the playbook plan, which we, which Las Vegas will ideally be a part of as it moves forward. Mm -hmm. And then I'll very quickly run down some of the stuff that we're doing here to try awesome. to fit into that. Cool. Sounds good. So the the playbook idea, and we're probably going to change the name on it because there's too many playbooks running around out there. Um, the playbook, the ecosystem playbook concept actually came from um, a gentleman named John Owen, who is the... Um, Kind of, he is the, to use the term I just used, he's sort of the traffic, he's sort of the switchboard operator for for the Dayton, Ohio ecosystem. So for those of your folks who aren't familiar with with the Midwest, Dayton is a metro area of probably a quarter million. So it's fairly small. It is an hour north of Cincinnati and probably an hour and a half from Columbus, Ohio. So it's not right next to a larger city, but it's kind of within striking distance. Um, Dayton was historically, Dayton is is in a lot of respects, a quintessential um, Rust Belt city. Um, So it was a city that it was the home of National Cash Register. And... Um, and a lot of other kind of big 20th century industrial operations, AC Delco. So some of the older folks might, might know some of these names. Um, 
Dayton crashed hard, like the 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 rest of the Rust Belt, and is in kind of rough shape these days. There is an organization called Launch Dayton that John is sort of the head guy for, that includes a bunch of largely nonprofits and largely sort of more traditional nonprofits. So there's you know, some community foundations and, and a social services agency and, and a couple of universities and so on and so on, who are part of this consortium um, who said that we want to work on entrepreneurship. We want to build up entrepreneurship in our community. And their particular goal was we want to have minority entrepreneurs in this community at the same the benchmark they set was the same same percentage of entrepreneurs being this in this community minority predominantly means black um, as as majority population. City of Dayton's about 50-50 um, African American and white. We want to hit that that threshold. We're a long way off. The challenge in Dayton is that none of those organizations or very few of them come out of an entrepreneurial background. So they're like, we see a problem. We want to try to solve it. But I think if they were totally honest with you, they would say, we don't really know how to do this. Um, So I came to John as I was trying to figure out what to do with that um, Everybody Innovates Here book. I, I wrote it. I worked on some stuff. I was getting ready to put a big push on it. Pandemic happens, right? That's kind of everybody's story these days. The what 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 John identified was that if we could pull together some other cities in addition to Dayton and look at how that framework might be applied in a different context, different kinds of places that that would be um, potentially something the national funders would be interested in, um, particularly nonprofit foundations at the national level who are focused on entrepreneurship. So, and on inclusive entrepreneurship, particularly. So just based on my connections and, and people and, and communities that I knew and trusted, we pulled together a group of four. Um, one is Dayton. One is um, the U.S. Virgin Islands. That's the only formal, that's the only kind of standard economic development organization as a lead entity in this group. One was obviously Las Vegas, because why would it not be? (laughs) And one is Asheville, North Carolina. And so all of those were organizations that, you know, were trying to answer these questions about entrepreneurship and inclusion and doing some good stuff and making some good strides, but struggling with, you know, how do we do this in a comprehensive manner? So the game plan, and we're shopping this to funders right now. So if any of your listeners have um, deep pockets or a direct line to the Ford Foundation, let me know. Uh, what What we're proposing is basically to draw on the Trep House network of um, black founders and 
kind of do a deep dive into each of these four communities, interview entrepreneurs, um, really learn and understand the organizations and the people in these communities, and then kind of map out what's going on in each of those these communities, what might be good ideas to do to kind of fill out that ecosystem. And ultimately the hope, this is where the playbook part comes in, um, is from the experience of those communities, be able to say, okay, it looks like these are common gaps to look for. These are, are ways that you can fill that gap and basically take the learnings of those four communities and um, accelerate entrepreneurship everywhere. That's really the ultimate goal. Right. And we're still, so, just to be clear, we're very much in the early, we've got a concept. I'm starting to pitch it to um, national partners. And we're just at the beginning. The beginning of the beginning to be yes, Churchillian. If, uh, but so, and so our part, and I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if we, we kind of touched on this early in our emails and early discussions, but it really hadn't kind of come together. But the, now the, for our part, uh, people here, because this entire thing, the Cafe Genius Project, which is the juxtaposition of the Cafe Centro coffee shop in San Francisco, where startups came to start, mm-hmm. or whatever their moniker was, and, um, and the Genius Lunch, which we used to have during the downtown project days when we just hang out at lunchtime and talk about who's doing what oh, yeah. and whatnot. It was, so I figured I need a name for the pitch workout room. So cafe genius here it is. And so now it has added on because the pitch workout room is good for getting people to start their journey of entrepreneurialism. Talk about your mm-hmm. idea. Those have been pretty successful given their very simple nature. And right. I said, we should have a round table of entrepreneurs that are on the ground that are really doing stuff and talk about some things that I thought were problems during the downtown project. I call it the, mm-hmm. the last mile. So we have we have that discussion going on. Matthew, who you know, is our data scientist. He's come up with our metrics. Uh, so we I have we we've consolidated we've consolidated three three. He's uh, he's he's taken classes and teaching classes, and he's uh, he's all over the place. But he so he he took on the metrics. We have three general areas: the the ecosystem itself, the shape, the the makeup, the good, the bad, the metrics that we we'll use to measure those things over time and the strategy mm-hmm. we will employ to drive the indicators in a positive direction. What that actually means is possibly up for discussion. Uh-huh. So the round table and then the downtown project retrospective, which I hope you will be a part of in some way is yeah. just going to be a survey of people who were part of or spectators or who have opinions and insights mm-hmm. to see what worked and what didn't back then. And what can we apply now? We could use the same metrics and whatnot. So there's, there's a lot of things we have moving here and we are, we too are just getting started. We're only, we started in January, so it's really very new, but we hope to connect all this stuff with uh, what, what you are working on so that mm-hmm. it becomes a, we project. Yeah. And I'm super excited as, about that. And, and we have other, like the trap house, if you look at their website and you listen to me or, or some of the other people at the round table and our discussions about the things that we, we, everybody uh, going back to the, you know, oh, just go talk to Jamie, go talk to Josh. And then the other one is go to the SBDC office or go to SCORE. Yeah. And those are great at a certain point. But if you're just getting started, they have no idea how to help you. And I had this discussion oh, yeah. with SBDC. 
So we're talking about like, you need something between I just got here and my suitcases are right here and okay, now I'm going to go to the SBDC and talk to them. So between there, there's a, a whole mile, <laughs> that last mile of I oh, need yeah. a place to live. I need to know who to talk to. I don't even know what's going on. And uh, mm-hmm. and so so that has actually gotten a positive reception. So there's hopefully oh, awesome. through yeah. the year we'll have, uh, and when we do part two, because clearly 90 minutes was not enough, 95 even. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there will be more to talk about, uh, surely. I, I'm not trying to rush, but I, I know it's been a, a long we're talking a lot. People are listening a lot. I'm sure everybody's hanging on though. Thank you. Um, but yeah, there, I think there's just going to be a tremendous amount, probably in another couple months, if you have time. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I am but, so or, excited to see. Yeah. I can't or, whenever, or whenever you want. Yeah. Whenever you want. But, uh, but yeah, I'm me too. I mean, I would, uh, so often as an engineer, people will ask me, why, why are you even doing this? Cause I want to see if it'll work. I mean, <laughs> that's the classic engineer answer. Perfect. But, but how are you going to monetize that? Uh, volume? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so it'd be yeah. interesting to see if some, if we can affect a positive change and we can actually measure it. And, um, it has been, I will tell you anybody out there looking to, uh, to do something, if you tr- proactively get smart people to join you on something like our genius uh-huh. Roundtable is aptly named, um, the, the, the discussion and the, the, um, the motivation, but this, the drive to actually do, you know, when I, I ran into Matthew before our second cohort meeting and he said, Oh, I'm still working on my, uh, my homework. So that I, and I'm like, wow, that's, uh-huh. it's, it's cool that people are not waiting till the last minute. Right. So you're getting people that are actually interested in what we're doing. And oh, so yeah. I envision them. Right. And I envision that these will be our EIRs for our ecosystem mm-hmm. moving forward. Right. Cause there that's are no awesome. entrepreneurs and residents to point people in the right direction. We have somebody in the veteran community. We have a native Las Vegan. Oh, we cool. have a strategy consultant. We have a data scientist. So, so we have people that with legitimate interest and actual interestingness to bring to bear on this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been pretty exciting. So That's we'll see we'll, when we next talk, we'll have, we'll both have more to say about our respective projects and how they're going to intersect. <laughs> well, and we'll totally, and we'll totally dive into the downtown project more because hopefully we'll have some retrospective feedback by then. Oh, that'd be awesome. And, and I'm thrilled to participate. You know, I, I would talk to you all day. I would talk about Las Vegas all day. I would, I, I can go on this stuff for hours. And unfortunately I, I'm probably doing that. So. I can talk for longer than you can. Is that a bet? Is that a wager? A challenge? (laughs) I don't think I should take that bet. (laughs) Sorry. That's, that was perfect. Um, yeah. I'm here all no, week. I'm... Tip your server. <laughs> oh, open mic. Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm I'm on deck. You just let me know. All right. Well, I'm uh well, I think both of us have tons of stuff to do. So if we talk more than we do, then we'll have nothing to talk about eventually yeah. uh, after a few yeah. years. But um but yeah, I definitely want to like some sort of an update when when we both have some I mean, things are happening all the time, but I don't want to uh, I, I think there's some deep diving to do on the downtown project specifically. And then mm-hmm. to be frank, and then we don't have to go too much today, but um, when we had our, our meetup of, of your group on the, mm-hmm. the playbook project, um, I believe Stephanie, is that her name? I don't remember her last name in, in, uh, oh, yes. in, Asheville. in North Carolina. Yeah. Asheville. Um, 
she had a really interesting idea about financing for startups mm-hmm. and how to make that work. And I thought that would be interesting for Evelyn to hear about for the housing stuff mm-hmm. here. So there's there's a lot of cross-pollination already in mind. So yeah, Good. that will only continue. So Good deal. So there's one thing I can do. It's take one person's good ideas and tell somebody else about that person's good ideas. That's the, the, the benefit. I don't always have my good own good ideas, but I can, I can crib them from somebody else any day of the week. Sure. And, um, <laughs> and I'm, so I've, I've been telling people and this, I, I believe this will be true. All the, all of my geniuses at my round table, they're all contributing with their names attached. So hopefully they'll all get a little bit of fame and not fortune perhaps, but some fame. I'm, I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm, I've been very impressed and even a little excited about the participation and the, the, the insights and, and so on. So I think there'll be some real value over time. So that's kind of been cool awesome. so far. So. Awesome. Good to hear. All right. All right. That's, that is 100 minutes and 27 seconds that I see on my clock here. So that's a good <laughs> run. Possibly uh, setting the bar for everybody else into the future. Sorry. but. No, no, no. I think uh, there's a lot to talk about. If if this isn't one of the most interesting topics in any city, like the future of how people will survive, <laughs> that seems like a good topic to discuss and spend some time on. So kind of important. I know it's crazy. Yeah. Cool. But I thank you very much, Della Rucker, for your time. And I look forward to part two and three. <laughs> All right. And uh, be sure and come and see us. Come and see us when you're out. I, I I'm trying to figure out how to get that done. Bring the kids to Area 15. <laughs> the Omega Mart is is as cool as they say it is. I promise. It's pretty cool. Yep. So. Yep. They, uh, yeah, that would be interesting to do. Cool. All righty. You <laughs> All take right. care. All right. Talk to you later. Sure. See ya. Bye-bye.